It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Brett Baer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, September 1st, 2023. I'm Jared Halper. The White House is working with governors in need of federal resources for natural disasters and a surge of asylum seekers. This is something everybody has to get together and solve. The president has to take a very strong lead on this. We need to hear more from the White House. We speak with Fox News Sunday anchor Shannon Bream. I'm Lisa Brady. Cannabis could become a less controlled substance, sparking more debate. Just as you see dominoes falling in states decriminalizing marijuana, this is a big domino. While it doesn't decriminalize it federally, bringing it from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 3 opens that door. And I'm DeRoy Murdoch. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. President Biden and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have spent a lot of time on the phone with one another as Hurricane Idalia approached, then left a path of destruction along Florida's Big Bend. We surged personnel to Florida to help the state move people quickly to safety and out of a danger zone and to help the governor and his team to the greatest degree possible in advance, in advance of the hurricane's arrival. The president has signed a major disaster declaration in the FEMA administrator surveyed damage alongside Governor DeSantis. There has been um, significant damage, particularly along Florida's Big Bend, uh, but the community is resilient and we are going to work hard to make sure people get what they need. And while Florida's Republican governor is among the candidates looking to oust President Biden from office next year, politics just simply isn't a concern right now, the president says. No, believe it or not, I know that sounds strange, especially how the the nature of politics today. But, you know, I was down there when the last major storm, I spent a lot of time with him walking from village to from community to community, making sure he had what he needed to get it done. I think he trusts my judgment and my desire to help. And I trust him to be able to suggest that this is not about politics, it's about taking care of the people of the state. For the Biden administration, the response to Hurricane Idalia is also drawing comparisons to the handling of last month's deadly wildfires in Hawaii. Florida gets very used to dealing with these kinds of storms. So any governor it, it knows you have to have assets pre-prepared. Uh, DeSantis talked about that. Like, listen, this is not our first rodeo. We know we've got to have the linemen, the trucks, the you know resources in the places we think are going to be worst hit. Shannon Bream is chief legal affairs correspondent for Fox News and the anchor of Fox News Sunday. Um, And that means setting aside the money and planning for these kinds of things, which they have done. So it sounds like the state was prepared. It's always, I think, reassuring to know that in moments of crisis, it's not going to be about politics. You think about um, Superstorm Sandy and Mm -hmm. Governor Christie and President Obama and how much ribbing they've both taken and criticism over, you know, you were hugging at the moment of, you know, in the middle of a presidential election. Um, You know, Governor Christie would be the first one to say, listen, for the people of my state, I'm going to do what I need to do. And in that moment is you forget politics, you think about the desperate needs of your people. And so always reassuring to hear that. Uh, the president, in this case, President Biden, in this case, the governor's governor, DeSantis, are doing things the way that is most beneficial for people in in desperate need. And for Governor DeSantis, it does mean having to leave the campaign trail at a time when, you know, most candidates don't want to do that. 
Yeah, but I think that there's also this calculation that it gives him a chance to show people that he's governing, you know, to show like, this is still my day job. This is what I do. He talks a lot on the campaign trail about the fact that he got all these things done in the legislative session. Well, people will say we had super majorities in the House, but this gives him a chance to say like, listen, in moments of crisis, I have planned things out. I've got the resources in place. I'm calm, cool and collected. And this is me doing my job. I mean, if anything, some of those images and press conferences and press coverage probably are more helpful to him at this moment than being at a diner somewhere, um, meeting with folks who that's a very important part of the campaign process too. But this gives potential voters out there who maybe have now started paying more attention because they've had that first debate, kids are back in school, summer's over, to see him actually doing what he does and what he you know, argues he would be the best at doing at the federal level. Let's talk about another governor, Governor Kathy Hochul of New York, mm-hmm. here at the White House this week, talking to the administration about the crisis going on in her state and in New York City over how to house and shelter these migrants. What does that tell you about how that issue is now developing? And does that change perhaps the response or change the strategy for the Biden administration? Well, it's been interesting that there are all along have been Democrats. You've talked to them. I've talked to them who are in these border states and communities who have long said, I think of Congressman Henry Cuellar, one of the loudest voices, a Democrat out of Texas saying, we need help. This is not a partisan issue. This is something everybody has to get together and solve. The president has to take a very strong lead on this. We need to hear more from the White House. I mean, you hear that um, from people like Senator Sinema, who's now become independent, mm-hmm. but other you know Democrat lawmakers as well saying, this is bad and people who are living with the reality of it. And so you're right to hear from both Mayor Eric Adams and from Governor Hochul up there. It sounds like that meeting she had at the White House was um, very serious, may have been very tense behind those closed doors because, you know, now that they're going to flood federal assets into New York to help with what's going on there, it certainly gives more life to the conversation. It's not just easily thrown away. Oh, these are partisan red state talking points against the government, um, against the feds. It's blue staters, too. It sounds like what Hochul is asking for is an expedited process to, one, sort of work its way through these asylum claims and Mm -hmm. two, expedite a way to get work permits for a lot of these Mm -hmm. migrants. The the thought being, if they are allowed to legally work, they won't need to stay in city and state shelters. How much discretion does the administration have on those two issues without Congress getting involved? You know, if anybody could expedite some of these claims, it would have to happen at the federal level, which is why Mm -hmm. it sounds like, according to what she's saying in the reporting, that the, you know, DHS officials and others are going to be sent into New York to help process some of these claims and get things done. Um, Because as you note, I mean, she's arguing if we can give people the ability to start working, I think the vast majority of these folks will be happy to come here and start working. But there's red tape and employers will get in trouble if they take them Mm -hmm. in and and put them on payrolls or try to pay them in cash or anything else. So, I mean, her pressing to get these people the availability to have work permits and and to fold into society in a way that then takes the burden off state and federal governments seems to make a lot of sense. But that is going to have to be a federal processing issue. Let's talk a little bit, too, about the the story that developed uh, late this week um, with the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. Um, We saw him last month have a little bit of a health scare um, where he had that pause 
some people called it like a freeze during a news conference. He'd left, he came back, he finished the news conference, had sort of a more mild episode that looked very similar to that this week. Listen, he is, I believe, 81 years old. There have been calls that maybe it's time for you know Congress to do a better job of figuring out when you've maybe you know stayed longer than you should. Um, do you expect that conversation to sort of increase now with with what we saw with, with uh, Senator McConnell? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because now both parties are having to have these conversations yeah. that are very tricky and delicate. You've got long-serving, very well-respected senators mm-hmm. like McConnell, like Feinstein, who've contributed yep. immensely to their parties over the years and have been master tacticians and have blocked judges and gotten judges passed mm-hmm. and blocked legislation and gotten legislation passed. I mean, these are people that the parties are going to be very hesitant to say, Hey, it's your time to go. Um, you know, I mean, Mitch McConnell's been a master tactician and strategist for decades over in the Senate. I do think it's fascinating that when you go and look in Kentucky, what would happen if there is a vacancy of a U.S. senator? You know, they amended their state law not long ago. And so it doesn't just fall to the um, governor. It now has a different process in which the Republicans there would be able to put together a series of names that the governor would then have to choose from. So um, mm. it just opens up all kinds of other conversations. His his McConnell's team says he's fine. He's going to be reviewed yep. by his doctor. He fully intends to serve out his full you know, Senate um, term, and we'll see if he decides to run for re-election. But um, both of those recent incidents sparking, you know, some pretty deep conversations in D.C. Um, you know, we're about to have, you know, a, a conversation in this country about certainly President Biden's age. And a lot of Republicans running for president are starting to talk about age in a way that maybe they weren't earlier in the campaign. Do you think that's going to be something we continue to hear from some of these younger Republican presidential hopefuls? Yeah, you think about Vivek Ramaswamy, 38 years old, um, <laughs> and talking about how he's kind of, you know, the first millennial to run for president. First presidential candidate younger than me. So that's been fun for me to, to cover. <laughs> yeah, when that happens, <laughs> they're sort of like, oh, and then if a, a Supreme Court justice gets nominated that's younger than you, you're like, oh, I'm getting old now. Oh, no, that's going to be. I got to hang it up then. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But they definitely, you know, it changes the conversation. He understands how moments go viral. He understands Mm -hmm. how to use social media. Um, You know, even Nikki Haley has been out there like, hey, if we have people of a certain age, maybe they should have to do a cognitive test. I mean, it does spark different (laughs) conversations. Um, And listen, unless something changes and we have a rematch of 2020, you're going to have two candidates who are at or right around 80, um, who would be, you know, among the oldest sworn in um, Mm -hmm. on election or excuse me, inauguration day. So um, the thing is, it's not like one party can talk about it and the other one can ignore it because they both have candidates who are up there. Let's finish with this, because Congress, as you point out, the kids are back in school, summer's ending, and that means uh, August recess is nearing its end as well here in Washington. (laughs) A few more days for Congress. Party's over few more days. Uh, But, um, you know, when Congress gets back, obviously, the spending issue is going to be, you know, I think probably priority one, right? They have to fund the government in pretty short order, whether or not that's a long term spending bill or a short term CR. We'll see how that plays out. But, you know, Speaker McCarthy is also going to start really hearing about it on moving forward with a decision on impeachment. How do you see that playing out between now and, say, the end of the year as this pressure kind of builds and a lot of different competing voices start getting in the air of the speaker? 
he's got a lot of cats to herd between now and the end of the year, because you do have factions of the party who will say, why haven't we impeached Mayorkas? We've been talking that for, right. about that forever. Why aren't we moving forward? We feel like we have enough now to talk about the Biden family. Um, and then you have others in the party openly saying, let's not do this. It makes us look unserious. Mm-hmm. We criticize the Democrats for doing this. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of spending bills to get done. There, I mean, think about the spending bills. Think about, you and I cover the minutia of this, but all yeah. of those deals that the speaker made to become speaker after 15 votes, was it? Remind me. <laughs> 15 rounds, um, yeah. <laughs> so he's got all of those people to corral because there are those who say, listen, you made us specific promises so we would vote for you. And we're now seeing bills that are being drafted that don't line up with the contours of what we agreed to. Mm-hmm. So he's got some very heavy lifts. And, you know, when the speaker's approached about this, he seems to always have the attitude of like, hey, one day at a time, we can handle multiple things. I got this. Mm -hmm. You guys are more worried than I am. We'll see. (laughs) Because it's a lot of very heavy lifting between now and Christmas. Um, And I just wonder kind of what the environment would look like uh, with another impeachment for for Congress. You know, inherently, people are going to feel on one side or the other that it's a partisan Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And so, you know, you got to be able to show that, uh, listen, Republicans control the House. If they decide to go that path, I think that all the leadership wants to feel like they have all their ducks in a row. The research mm-hmm. is there. The witnesses are there that they don't now look like what they were accusing Democrats of three or four mm-hmm. years ago. But as you mentioned, I mean, and we talked about all of these spending bills and other things that have to be handled, the split that seems to be developing over further Ukraine spending and all Mm -hmm. kinds of things. You run the House, that means people are going to scrutinize what you're doing. If you don't get things done, but you seem to have time for an impeachment, you know, inquiry, you're going to take heat over that. Shannon Bream, always a a pleasure to talk with you and have a good weekend. Thank you, Jared. You too. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. This is DeRoy Murdoch with your Fox News commentary coming up. A major change in U.S. drug policy is on the table in Washington. It's a recommendation from Health and Human Services to the Drug Enforcement Administration that marijuana be classified differently as a Schedule Three drug, like anabolic steroids and Tylenol with codeine. Right now, pot is a Schedule One drug, the same category as heroin, meth, and LSD, considered a high potential for abuse and without any currently accepted medical use in the U.S. The president actually asked the secretary of HHS and also the attorney general to initiate uh, the administrative process to review how marijuana is scheduled. The White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre says the process will remain independent, led by HHS and the Justice Department. Last year, President Biden pardoned federal convictions for simple marijuana possession, urging governors to follow suit for state offenses. Medical marijuana is legal in 38 states, 23 states and D.C., have legalized recreational marijuana use. Still, the debate over pot has continued. Dr. Marty McCary, a Johns Hopkins professor and Fox News medical contributor, telling Fox Business, 
it doesn't appear to meet the criteria for a class one uh, narcotic, but um, class three may be under underplaying the real risk. People think marijuana is totally safe. There are actual health risks, including the risk of psychosis. It's not just that people get lazy and hungry. Changing the cannabis classification could have wide ranging impacts, including for the criminal justice system, the pharmaceutical industry and federal taxes. The ball's completely in the DEA's court. Lance Lysing is a former FBI supervisory special agent signed to a drug task force. The DEA has the ability to accept or deny. They'll go through their own study process. There will also be a, a time for public comment on the change as well. It is a pretty uh, convincing recommendation coming from the Department of Health and Human Services just because that department does carry weight done their own clinical studies. Uh, Those will will be released. I don't believe they have been already, but they should be released. But yeah, this is completely up to the DEA at this point on whether it will move from a schedule one to a three. How big of a change would that be? I mean, just even just on its face, it sounds like a big change going from one to three. Right. So I think what people understand that this does not decriminalize marijuana from the federal sense. There are many states, over 30, I think 38 states that have decriminalized marijuana in some way. Federally, they have not at all. It's been a Schedule One substance you know, since the 80s, I believe. And all that means is that a Schedule One substance, there's no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. So the sentencing guidelines in the criminal statutes are higher higher mandatory minimums, it's more serious of a crime. As you go down in schedule, schedule two drugs and then schedule three drugs, which marijuana is supposed to be, it still remains criminal. All those drugs are still criminal to traffic and possess, but the sentencing guidelines are less. So in, in from a schedule one to a schedule three, it drops almost in half. I think the mandatory minimum for a schedule one is 20 years uh, with trafficking and it goes down to 10, I believe, for a schedule three. So it's still criminal. It just reduces that criminal charge. And one of the ancillary effects is that it probably reduces the priority in law enforcement agency to investigate it. If they've got the option to investigate a Schedule One substance trafficking, they're probably going to do that over a Schedule Three. Right, because as an example, Schedule One, we're talking like heroin and LSD, and then Schedule Three, right. you're talking, you know, testosterone, anabolic steroids. Has pot ever gotten this close to having a change in classification that you know of? Not since you know, the 80s, but the the war on drugs and then the increase in resources placed towards um, the fight against marijuana. So, and DEA has historically been very against changing the schedule on marijuana. So this will be an interesting decision by the DEA. Uh, The Department of Health and Human Services recommendation carries some weight that was um, recommended by President Biden for them to do that analysis. So there is some of this coming from the White House as well. And it'll be interesting to see how the DEA uh, decides ultimately. From your perspective, you know, working with the FBI in the past, um, has there been a lot of talk about this possibly happening in law enforcement circles? Is this something that, you know, the prevailing thinking is this would not be a good thing? Or is it just the opposite, that they would rather spend resources with the FBI, with the DEA, these types of federal law enforcement agencies um, on other things and not so much on pot anymore since it is legal either for medical or recreational use in about half the country now? 
that's a really good question. So law enforcement agencies are always facing the problem of limited resources. So where do you prioritize your resources? You want to hear, hit the most serious crimes, right? You want to protect uh, citizens as best you can and keep them safe. So usually the violent offenses take priority. And in the drug cases, the violent drug offenders will take priority. And the worst of the worst types of drugs, the fentanyl type of drugs, the heroin, the, the meth, I mean, those type of things that cause... Um, a lot of violence and and a lot of death on the in the abuse side of it. So, I, and and they've also been facing a continual decriminalization at the state law. A lot of these drug squads, the drug squad I worked on, was a drug task force. So you have state and local investigators paired up with federal investigators. And in a lot of states, we've got a conflict there. And state laws don't criminalize marijuana, federal does. We still prosecute and go after drug offenders, the worst of the worst marijuana offenders. But oftentimes you find yourself just necessarily moving to those other schedule one drugs that are more serious and usually create more uh, significant ramifications for the community, such as fentanyl. So you're, you're going after those more. You're constantly doing that. If, if you're asking me what pervasive opinion of law enforcement is, I think the decriminalization of drugs has a lot of societal costs that law enforcement officers see every day and fire and any first responders, they see the increased overdoses, they see increased emergency room visits. And Colorado had a 30% increase in emergency room visits um, in the years after they decriminalized marijuana alone. You have a lot of access to marijuana and, and those precursor drugs as uh, from the youth side of it. So you have those type of issues. I think overall police, if I'm stereotyping, I would say most agencies are against um, decriminalizing. The one positive it would have for law enforcement agencies is the ability to move resources from working marijuana and um, lower uh, priority drug cases to higher priority crimes such as robberies, uh, homicides, and, and getting a better clearance rate on those, those types of cases. Even as more states have decided to allow uh, marijuana to decriminalize it, there's still this debate ongoing about the benefits of it versus the risks of it, right? And it, it's still talked about in the negative sense as a gateway drug. Does that still hold true? Yes, the, the gateway argument absolutely holds true. There are many other arguments to the negative effects of it. You have the, the traffic safety argument, the, uh, the increase of individuals dr driving drugged rather than driving drunk increases with the decriminalization of marijuana. You also have the effects on the mentally ill. Those are really difficult calls for local law enforcement to respond to. And there are many studies that show that marijuana at times has an increased psychiatric effect on those suffering from mental illness from the start. So you know, law enforcement officers are always going to be against anything that increases the chances of an irrational response and, and potentially violence coming from somebody who's already mentally challenged. So, and and then and then you add edibles and and the other ways that people can take in a lot more of the drug than they would expect and causes overdoses and the societal costs of increased health care. Would a rescheduling, a change in the classification of marijuana, impact other related crimes? In other words, would trafficking marijuana still be just as serious a crime if it were not considered as serious a drug in the schedule? So it will still be a crime. However, the sentence would be reduced. So in the federal sentencing guidelines, Schedule 1 drugs, which marijuana was, 
the offense was greater it, it, for trafficking. It would be, um, it's been a while since I've looked up the, the offense, but the, the trafficking offense for, let's say, for example, if you had the right amount, it would be something like 20 years for a schedule three, that would be cut down to about 10. So it would be half as significant, um, even on the federal side, still a crime and still something that people can be charged with, but not as significant of a, a ramification, a penalty on the other side. Let's say the DEA accepts the HHS recommendation and the the restrictions on cannabis, if you will, are lessened. And it's it's still not legal at the federal level, but this classification changes. What does that do on the ground day to day for agencies like the DEA and the FBI? Does it automatically change the way they're doing things? One thing it changes, I mean, if you're talking about the administrative side of like the DEA or even the FDA, so it's going to change some things immediately. One, it would give a lot more access to marijuana for researchers and studies. That's something that researchers and, and groups that study the effects on marijuana have always complained about as a Schedule One substance. It was very difficult for them to get through the red tape to get access to it legally and be able to study it. That would change if it's down to a Schedule Three. It would make it a lot easier. The second thing, practically on the ground, that would happen is it's going to give a tax break to the cannabis industry. Right now, as a Schedule One drug, they pay a significant tax um, costs in order to run a business that sells marijuana, a Schedule One drug. When it goes down to a Schedule Three, those tax implications are going to be limited, and they will save money. So those are the things you're going to see that's immediate. From the criminal side, practically, you're probably not going to see a big increase because these drug task forces have already kind of been moving to the priority of fentanyl or the priority of methamphetamine or or those other types of drugs that are more severe. And this is probably just another step in that direction. I wonder if this will get as much attention this proposed change as it would have, say, maybe a decade ago, um, before so many states had already made changes on their own. Just as you see dominoes falling in states decriminalizing marijuana, this is a big domino. While it doesn't decriminalize it federally, bringing it from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 3 opens that door. This, If the DEA decides to bring it to a Schedule 3, it will be cited over and over again by individuals arguing for the full-on decriminalization of marijuana. So it is definitely another domino. Are you worried about full decriminalization uh, about you know marijuana possibly being legal nationwide in america it it worries me it worries me for the societal costs i think more than the criminal penalties part of me um likes the idea of less violent offenders in jail Uh, i i know how difficult it is even to get jail time for a violent offender um so reducing the number that are waiting, you know, that the jails can accept and we can only put the most serious of the serious offenders in there. I I like that idea. However, the societal costs scare me. I mean, we all have kids. We all see them growing up in in our society and we're worried about what they're going to prioritize and what kind of risks are out there. And to me, this adds yet one more risk that, you know, the government's turning a blind eye to. Lance Leising, former FBI supervisory special agent. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lisa. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Ever lost something important and thought, well, I guess I'll never see that again? That's just what happened to Jim Denny. 
Last year in July, Denny, who's a farmer in Iowa, took a fishing trip with his wife and some friends to Lake of the Woods in Minnesota. On the last night of the trip, Denny went to get his wallet out of the back pocket of his bib overalls, only to come up empty-handed. It was gone, along with the $2,000 in cash that had been in it. He figured it must have gone into the lake during some choppy water, and even though the fisherman went back to look for it, nothing turned up. Devastated and broke, Denny says he accepted that his wallet and money were somewhere at the bottom of the lake, which has an average depth of 27 feet, but gets to more than 200 feet deep in some parts. Nearly a year later, Denny was sitting in a Walmart parking lot when he got a call from a rancher he'd hauled cattle for. She wanted to know if he'd been on any fishing trips recently. Contacts were made, and Denny got the news that a Minnesota boy had reeled in his wallet while fishing and that he wanted to return it. Connor Halsa had been fishing over the July 4th weekend this year, nearly a year after the wallet went missing, and he hooked it while fishing for walleye. He and his family tracked Denny down and made plans to return the wallet, slimy cash and all. Denny wanted to thank them in person and drove eight hours to take them all out to dinner. He also brought Connor a gift, a cooler with his name and a picture of a fish on it. Denny says the act of kindness reminded him that there are still good people in the world, and he calls Connor top of the line. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. DeRoy Murdoch. What's on your mind? Why are so many Republicans knuckling under to Democrats' temporary election rules changes? Crafty Democrats used 2020's COVID-19 catastrophe to change the way Americans pick our leaders. Democrats filled hundreds of lawsuits to demand mass mail-in ballots, early voting, late arrivals of ballots, and other emergency measures. They argued that the coronavirus was just too dangerous for traditional in-person voting. Now, as the 2024 elections loom, COVID-19 is in the rearview mirror. Previously ubiquitous masks disfigure the faces of only a few germaphobes and diehards. Social distancing has gone the way of the hustle. And yet Democrats' one-time ballot procedures are becoming permanent. Governor Glenn Youngkin, Virginia's otherwise admirable Republican governor, has launched Secure Your Vote Virginia. Youngkin wants GOP voters and their cross-party supporters to cast their ballots early, mail them in, and practice ballot trafficking, with voters handing their ballots to party activists free of the adult supervision found at polling places. I need your early vote this year, Youngkin stated. We can't go on election day down thousands of votes. The Republican National Committee is taking this thinking from coast to coast. Last June, it unveiled Bank Your Vote, an effort to, quote, encourage, educate, and activate Republican voters on when, where, and how to lock in their votes as early as possible through in-person early voting, absentee voting, and ballot harvesting where legal, unquote. Wrong. All of this is premature at best. At worst, it's totally illegal. While Virginia can do whatever it wants with state and local elections, it is bound by federal law as is the RNC's plan. Federal Election Day is, quote, the Tuesday next after the first Monday in November in every even-numbered year, unquote. It's the law. Also, voting anywhere other than in person behind a curtain destroys something sacred, 
the secret ballot. Absentee ballots potentially allow spouses, relatives, bosses, and even door-to-door political activists to pressure voters into casting their ballots one way or another. Rather than surrender to the Democrats' COVID-era assaults on U.S. election norms, Republicans should fight ferociously in local, state, and federal court to reverse these one-time special measures. The GOP should follow the lead of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. PLIF is suing in a North Dakota federal court to kill its law that allows ballots to arrive 13 days after Election Day. PILF President J. Christian Adams said, quote, Election Day has ceased to be a day. Adams added, and I quote, instead, we have election month because states accept ballots that arrive days and even weeks after Election Day. Full disclosure, the Public Interest Legal Foundation represents your truly and three other plaintiffs in a federal lawsuit designed to overturn New York City's law that allows foreign citizens to vote in local elections. If such relentless, robust litigation succeeds, Americans can look forward to a return to election integrity. And if such lawsuits fail in the U.S. Supreme Court, then and only then should Republicans accept as permanent the Democrats' COVID-era attacks on America's voting system. I'm DeRoy Murdoch. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.